Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. It's been a great day. Look forward to the message I get to bring. I look forward to the 316 season where we can hear some testimonies of what's going on in some of our mission efforts. So I want to encourage you to go ahead and be prayerful over the offering that you will give at the very end of October for that 316 offering that goes to support our global efforts. I've got to be honest this morning, I I preach with a heavy heart. Um, The message I'm preaching today, I have felt this burden uh, to the point where I woke up with my back sore, and this isn't just because of my age, all right? Uh, it, occasionally, God does this to me. I, I feel a great burden that there is freedom that needs to come to some people in this room. And so I want to begin this morning praying uh, for God to have his way with us. And I just want to ask you to join me in prayer that God will speak and, and just unleash his freedom upon people in this room who need some freedom whether that's in sin or in relationships, whatever that may look like. So can we bow our heads and can we pray? Because God, I can stand up here and I can deliver words, but if your spirit isn't here breathing power in and through them, it's meaningless. So God, as you're doing things all over this world today, saving people, unleashing your power, I pray right here in this room that you have your way with us and whatever it is you need a breakthrough, whatever it is you need to unchain, however it is, God, that you want to speak and declare your freedom and release upon people, God, do it. Give us the courage to listen to you and to act. And God, if, uh, if I say anything that doesn't line up with who you are, may it fall to the ground and not be remembered at all. But if I speak anything this morning that is true to who you are, may it sink deep into us and mess with us and have its way with us and bear great fruit. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It doesn't take long in life for us to realize that life often does not go as we expected it to go. You go to a place, you order beef enchiladas, you get cheese enchiladas, right? You think one thing's going to happen and it doesn't happen. I don't think anyone goes to their wedding day thinking that they're going to be divorced in five years or no one has a child thinking or hoping that that child goes crazy at age 15. I don't think anyone ever hopes that they get fired by the age of 40 or that they lose a job at a certain age or that they have cancer by the age of 45, life takes these unexpected turns on us. And a lot of times there are times in faith that we expect one thing to happen and it doesn't happen. We think God's going to open one door for us and that door doesn't open. We don't see why God would close some door, but it seems to close. So what do we do in life when Jesus does things that we would never expect him to do? Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 today. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. This is a story many of us are familiar with. Even if you haven't been in church much of your life, if you ever went to BBS, you've probably heard this story, and it goes like this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Don't you wish you could have been there just to see this, right? I mean, not directly under it, but somewhere in that room, you know. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some teachers of the law were sitting there, not saying out loud, but they're thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew his spirit, in his spirit, that this was when they, uh, that this was when what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? 
Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. It's a crazy story. And it's a really fun story in VBS, but it's not so fun if you're an insurance agent, right? It's probably not so fun if you're a contractor or you do roofing. You may already be thinking, I mean, what if it rains the next day? How are we going to fix that? I mean, what if this house already had a squirrel problem? Now what's it going to look like? This happened in Capernaum. And sometimes we just skip over the name of towns, but Capernaum's a place, this is only Mark chapter 2. This is the first story of Mark chapter 2. But in Mark chapter 1 verse 21, it says Jesus already went to Capernaum where he taught in a synagogue. It was in Capernaum that he called his first disciples who were fishermen. It's in Capernaum that right after this story, he's going to call Levi, who was a tax collector, who was also from Capernaum. And Levi's a tax collector, and most likely he's collecting taxes from fishermen, making sure they were high. Can you imagine him calling those, all those people into the same community? It's Capernaum. This is where Jesus was in a synagogue that he drove out demons. He healed a woman of fever. He drove out more demons. He healed more diseases. So now he came back to Capernaum after going on a little preaching tour of other synagogues. And now can you imagine if you're in this little bitty town and Jesus had already been to that town doing a lot of things? Of course crowds are going to come. Capernaum was a town of about 1,500 people. Small little town. How many of you grew up in a town of 1,000 to 2,000 people? Just a show of hands. Right? Don't be ashamed. I mean, small town life is all right. Eh? It's small town life. Everybody knows everybody's business. Am I right? My grandparents retired in a town called Groveton. So most of my life when we visited my grandparents, B and Papa, we went to Groveton. It was a town of 1,000 people. It had one restaurant, a Dairy Queen. A Texas stop sign, all right? I don't remember there being a deli or a cafe or a diner. There was Dairy Queen. If you wanted after church, if you wanted to go get some ice cream with your grandkids, we went to Dairy Queen. If you wanted to take your wife out on a romantic date, you went to Dairy Queen. <laughs> Dairy Queen is where they, they voted to hire principals and football coaches. It's where they settled the town's business. Dairy Queen was it. Early on in my preaching career, I was asked to go to a gospel meeting at this church in Grofton, a revival for four days. I drove into the town and I thought, I'm going to go to that Dairy Queen. It's going to bring back good memories of times my grandparents took me there and I drove up and it, the windows were boarded up. And I thought to myself, what, is this, what does this town have to live for anymore? <laughs> like, just God come and take these people. There's nothing left here. Small little town. In small towns, you know everything. The people, the, the person Jesus drove out that demon of, people probably knew who he was. The fever Jesus healed, people probably knew who she was. So when Jesus came back into a small little town where everybody lived in close proximity to each other, of course people came into this house to hear Jesus. But this day Jesus wasn't healing diseases and he wasn't driving out demons. He's in this crowded house and he's teaching the word. We don't know what he was teaching. He's just teaching people. He's teaching them the word. He's teaching them, I'm assuming teaching them about the kingdom of God. 
And so many people are gathered. They're in the house. There's no room for anyone else. People like peeking through the windows, leaning through the windows, and the front door is all crowded. You can't get anyone in. And imagine being in that town. Everybody knows your stuff. Imagine being a paralyzed man in that town. Because everybody knows not just that you were paralyzed, they know how you became paralyzed. And there are a lot of ways you can become paralyzed. Maybe he was born that way. We don't know how he was paralyzed. Maybe it was an accident because something crazy he did on his own. Maybe it's someone else who did something crazy, and he's the one that ended up reaping the consequences of it. We don't know. But imagine being a paralyzed man in a small town in a time when theology was against you. Paralyzed in a time when a lot of the thinking about God is if you're in that kind of condition, it's either a sin from your own life or maybe a sin from your parents' life. So that's, it's the wrath of God on you. Imagine that. So maybe the reason they can't get him to Jesus isn't because it's just so crowded. It's that the crowd looks at who's coming and says, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. You belong out there. You don't belong in here. Has the church ever done that to people? Like you stay out there because we aren't really sure what to do with you in here. Small town, everybody knows this stuff, but apparently there are a few people. The Bible doesn't call them friends. They're just people. And maybe they were friends, and they wanted to get paralyzed man into the presence of Jesus. Maybe they're not friends. Maybe they're just people who woke up, and they're like, man, we need to do something kind for someone today. So they choose to take Mr. Paralyzed Man to Jesus. Maybe that wasn't it. Maybe Mr. Paralyzed Man was so whiny that people finally said, dude, we can't take it anymore. we got to get him to Jesus right now. We don't know why. But you know, four people start carrying this person to Jesus. They can't get to Jesus, so they, they get creative. And Jesus' response is, when he saw their faith, he chooses to do something to Mr. Paralyzed Man. When he saw their faith. And there are times today when maybe Jesus sees your faith and chooses to do something to someone else because of your faith. And it's not that you have the faith that can save someone else or that you have the faith that can forgive someone else. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can save and only he can forgive. But according to this story, your faith plays a part in people's redemption. So who is it in your life that you need to get bold with and courageous with and creative with that we've got to do whatever we can to get this person into the presence of Jesus. They need a touch of God. And they do whatever they can to get him there. And they get the man there. And then there is this drastic turn in the story that people do not, they wouldn't have expected this. Because sometimes we expect one thing from Jesus and we get another thing from Jesus. If you take a paralyzed person into the presence of Jesus, you expect that Jesus is going to see the condition this person is in and Jesus is going to heal him of his paralysis. I had fun this week. I, I had multiple times when I sat with people, young people, my own kids, and even older people who know a lot about the Bible. And I said, all right, there's a story in the Bible. You know what it is. There's a person who's paralyzed, and he has people who take him in the presence of Jesus, and they get him to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? And 100% of the people responded to me with, responded to me with what well, Jesus looked at him, and Jesus said, take up your mat and go. And that's not what Jesus does. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if the people who carried him in were like, well, that, that's really cool, but I don't know if you noticed there's something else going on with this man. Can we, like, heal him? We, we brought him to you to, to heal him? And Jesus doesn't begin with healing him. He begins with forgiving him. 
So this is where we don't know what the motive of Jesus was. Was it this personal connection with the guy? Like Jesus was aware of his sin, so Jesus has this moment with him. Was it, was it Jesus trying to make this public declaration of his own authority so everyone else could hear? What? Maybe it was a little bit of all of that. But we know that before Jesus healed his temporary condition, Jesus chose to heal his eternal condition. That maybe Jesus knew that sometimes it is sin that can weigh on us and paralyze us in ways that our physical body could never be paralyzed. He starts with forgiveness before he heals the man. He starts with the spiritual condition before he heals the physical condition. So so let me ask you, I mean, is it possible for you to experience the healing of God and not to experience the forgiveness of God? And maybe I should flip it. Is it possible for you to experience the forgiveness of God and not experience healing? And I bet a lot of us would say yes to that. Now, Jesus is interested in both. It's not that Jesus is like, well, we don't care about the fact that he's paralyzed. He does. He wants to set your entire body right. He wants to set your heart right with God. He wants to set your body right with God. But when we come to God with our physical condition and circumstances, don't be surprised when Jesus says, hang on, hold up for a minute. I'm going to aim for the heart first. First and foremost, I want to set your heart right with God because I think Jesus knew it was possible for him to heal this disease. Yet after that, for this man not to be able to hear a word about forgiveness of God. Because he'd be so excited about being healed. Isn't this the way it works sometimes? Jesus, first thing he does before he heals the man of being paralyzed, he heals the heart. Now, some of you are in here. And you've been crying out to God for a long time for physical healing. And you may be looking up here thinking, well, it's one thing for a preacher to step on the stage. And a preacher who's, I consider my body to be functioning at a pretty good level right now. I don't have chronic pain. I don't have arthritis. I've never had cancer. I don't suffer from disease. My body seems to be working pretty well. And some of you are crying out for yourself or for someone you love for great healing. And where I want to encourage some of you who are dealing with chronic pain and serious physical ailments, and illnesses and maybe cancers, can you take just a few moments today to offer up gratitude to God that you do not have to carry the weight of your sin and your guilt and your shame? Because I have walked with people countless times where I've seen the weight of guilt and shame paralyze way more people than I've seen be physical paralyzed in my life. Is this the power of sin? Um, I don't know what to do with these opponents in this story. Because when Jesus forgives him, it says that there were these scribes who they didn't say it out loud, but they're thinking in their heart. Like, who are you to forgive sin? And sometimes we're hard on scribes and teachers of the law until I think about how I am one sometimes. Because when it comes to these scribes, maybe they had a high view of God and maybe they thought only God can forgive sin. And if they didn't believe Jesus was God, then why... Of course they should say and think in their heart, who is this man who can forgive sin when only God can forgive sin? Maybe it's because they had a high view of God, not a low view of God. And maybe one of our problems today is we have a high view of what God has done in the past, but not a high view of what God can still do right now. Or a high view of what God can do in the future, but not a high view of what God can still do right now. 
And we need a high view of what God has done in the past and a high view of what God can still do right now and a high view of what God can do in the end. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. And he wants to set the whole body right. And I think Jesus knew that it's possible for you to experience some healing in your body yet carry this weight in your own heart of not feeling like you were forgiven by God. Uh, So I had a dream last night, and I hesitated whether to share this or not, because sometimes I don't know what to do with my dreams. Uh, but in my dream last night, I was, I was on this stage, and I was making this point in the sermon. And in my dream, I was preaching in front of this church, and I was talking about the forgiveness of God, and that there, there are some people who who you feel like you're forgiven by God, but you can't forgive yourself. And I think that's a question for some of you here. It's not can God forgive you, it's can you forgive you for the things you've done. Like you believe God can forgive your affair, but you can't forgive yourself for the affair. You believe God can forgive your betrayal and grief, but you, you're not able to forgive your own betrayal or grief. You believe God can forgive your addiction, but you are unable to forgive yourself for your addiction. So what the enemy, or whatever you want to call him, Satan or the devil, what he wants to do is, hey, there's no, he knows there's nothing he can do about the forgiveness of God coming on you, but then can he try to convince you that that sin has to define you for the rest of your life? So in my dream, I was making this point, I was on this stage making this point that there are those who feel forgiven by God, but you cannot forgive yourself. And in the dream, there was a balloon, and the balloon symbolized people in this church who feel like God can forgive them, but that God barely forgives them. The balloon symbolized this thinking sometimes in our minds of God forgave me, but he reluctantly saved me. He reluctantly forgave me. It's like God took a vote in heaven of should we forgive this person for the things they've done, and you barely won out on the vote. But that God is holding like this balloon over you, waiting for you to do just one thing wrong, and forgiveness is gone. Like, I am forgiven, but you're not living like you're free. And in my dream, this balloon symbolized that. It symbolized the fact that God could forgive sin, but that some of you can't forgive yourself. And in my dream, I remember I looked over at God, and I said, God, and my heart was just sad. And to think of, of people who were, who were carrying weight that you were never meant to carry. It's a lie of the enemy. And I looked at God, because I knew these balloons weren't of God. And I looked out over this church, hoping I would not see any balloons and there were dozens of them. They were everywhere. And I woke up in my dream thinking, I'm preaching in front of people, and some of you, this may not connect with you at all. I just want to believe there's someone here today who in your heart, there are things you've done, and you know God can forgive you. But there's weight that you're carrying that is never yours to carry. That Jesus carried it. And he died for it and it's gone and you've, you've been set free and the enemy wants you to believe that whatever the sin or the sins were, that it has to define you for the rest of your life. But Jesus wants to set you free in a different kind of way. To heal your heart. And to give you legs that work so you can move. God can forgive it all. He can make you whole. He can make you right. 
Sometimes I wrestle in my heart, is it harder to forgive people for things they've done to us, or is it harder to receive the forgiveness of God? And I've asked a lot of people this over the last couple of weeks, what's harder for you to forgive other people for things they've done, or for you to feel like you're forgiven by God? And probably 75% of the people I ask said it's a lot harder for them to forgive other people, but there are some who, who said it's still hard to really feel like you were forgiven by God. Forgiveness is hard, right? This isn't easy. It's not easy for me to preach this, this sermon on forgiveness. It's, it's hard to live this out. It sounds really good. It sounds, it sounds great for the world until you have to do it. Daryl Tippins writes in his book, The Pilgrim Heart, and he says, Unforgiven people, unforgiven, People live with endless shame and regret, with unresolved resentment and anger. Without forgiveness, families dissolve, marriages fail, churches split, and nations divide. Kirk Franklin, who's a gospel singer, gospel artist, he's been around for a long time. He was born and raised in Houston. He currently lives in Dallas, which has nothing to do with his story, but to tell you, he has a little Texan in him, all right? And it went public the last week or two that Kurt Franklin was abandoned by his father at birth, never knew who his dad was, and has lived with this hatred in his heart for his entire life at his father. And somebody told him about a week ago that, hey, your dad lives in Houston, Texas, and they've only given him a few months to live. So he jumped on a plane and he went to meet his dad for the very first time. And here's what he wrote. He said, I took my hate for him and I used it as fuel to be the best father I could be for my own. But what I did wrong is I never took that fuel and turned it into forgiveness. And that was wrong. It was wrong for him, for me, and the God I proclaim to represent. How can I preach what I don't practice? So I flew to Houston yesterday to do that. It's painful. It's a process. But how disappointed I would be in myself for this man to leave this earth without being forgiven. He deserves to receive what God gives me every single day. Sam Moffat was a missionary in China, and he, he and his family barely escaped as they fled the communists. He had missionary friends who were killed by them. His house was burned. He lost all his possessions, and there was this burning hatred in his heart. But he went on to write, I realize that if I have no forgiveness for the communists, then I have no message at all. There's a, a priest, I mean a, a, a rabbi who survived Hitler's regime and all this stuff that went on decades ago. But when, he went on to write, before coming to America, I had to forgive Adolf Hitler. I did not want to bring Hitler inside me to my new country. And you've, you've probably read and you've seen stories like Elizabeth Smart who forgives the people who kidnapped her and abused her and the Amish community who's so quick to forgive when people murder folks in their community and then the, the Charleston when the white supremacist, the young man, went and opened fire at a prayer meeting and how quick people in that church were to forgive. And we hear these stories and we think it's great and we hope that could be us one day until you actually have to live it. And you realize forgiveness is a lot harder than we think it is. Elizabeth O'Connor writes, despite a hundred sermons on forgiveness, we do not forgive e easily, nor find ourselves easily forgiven. Forgiveness, we discover, is always harder than the sermons make them out to be. And I believe, and I want to preach, believing today that forgiveness for your own self and for people who've done you wrong, forgiveness is this release for you. But just because it's a release doesn't mean that 
injustices don't remain. It doesn't always take away the pain. Just because you forgive doesn't mean the broken things are going to be put back together. Just because you forgive, it, there are people who've been murdered who don't come back to life. There are things that happen that are not fixed and they don't go back to what like they once were. And I stand in front of you, I've never in my life been sexually abused or physically abused and barely emotionally abused. I mean, I've been called names, I've been written up on stuff, all right? But I know I'm preaching in front of people today who have had people do awful things to you. And I don't want you to hear me talk about forgiveness, making it sound like, hey, if you love God, you'll go home from church today and you will offer someone forgiveness and then the, the immediate result will be joy and life and freedom and abundance. I wish it happened that way, but it doesn't. What I do want you to hear me say, forgiveness is a process. And maybe today is the day you take the first step on a journey of getting to a point where you can forgive so that there can be release. Because here's the thing, church, like if we don't offer forgiveness, what is our other option? What else do we have to offer anybody? Is it that we only forgive when other people deserve it? Because Immanuel Kant, the philosopher of a couple hundred years ago, he took that route and he, he wanted nothing to do with God. Is it that we believe that people, what goes around comes around, it's karma, that's Hinduism. And don't we believe that the gospel has something better than Hinduism to offer to the world? If we don't offer forgiveness, what do we have to offer? But forgiveness doesn't mean that complete reconciliation is going to happen. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we minimize the need for justice in the world. What forgiveness does mean is we're going to trust that God is better at justice than we are. One person once said, We instinctively reach for a shield and a sword, but the cross offers us outstretched arms and a naked body with a pierced side, and we feel we need the cunning wisdom of serpents, but the cross invites us to the foolishness of innocent doves. Forgiveness is a posture, forgiveness is a gift. And forgiveness is the ultimate way to conquer the world. We think conquer the world through power. The gospel says conquer the world through forgiveness. The word forgiveness also means to release or to hurl away or to free yourself. Smeeds once said, the first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiveness. When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner we set free was us. Uh, a while back, <clears throat> my family and I sat down at lunch with another family from this church. We ordered Central Barbecue, and the barbecue was on its way. I could see it on the plate coming to us. I believe this is the kind of lunch Jesus would eat if he was with us today, all right? <laughs> the barbecue nachos on a Sunday right after church are coming right my way. And my wife gets a phone call from Alarm Alert, our alarm company, that there was a broken window at our house. And my first thought was, baby, you go check it out. I'm going to eat here, all right? And after the meal, I'll meet you up at the house, all right? Um, and so I thought, okay, you stay here. I'm going to go home. And I thought, maybe it's just a false alarm. It's something like that. So I drove up to my house. The alarm's going off, and sure enough, a window had been broken. So I didn't know what had been taken. Come to find out, People broke into our house. That only took a couple of TVs. I know people have been broken into all over Shelby County. It's an awful feeling, right? You feel violated. 
And I, sometimes I sit in groups with clergy and other pastors, and the number of pastors who have stories of being broken into on Sunday mornings is wild, all right? And I walked in, and I knew our TVs were gone, but my mind immediately went to, what, what, what about Casey and the boys when they get home? How are they going to take it? How do you process this with a family? Like, are my kids going to have nightmares for months? What, what, how do we move forward from this? And I was two days away from taking a trip to go to Ethiopia, all right? And it was the NFL playoffs. So we didn't have TVs, and the NFL playoffs were coming on that day. <laughs> so my boys walk in, and their first statement was, well, Dad, where are we going to watch the NFL playoffs, all right? <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings, where are we going, Dad? Chili's? Friends' house, where are we going to do? And I love it, church family, because the moment people found out what had happened, we got a phone call. We got a few phone calls within five minutes. The TVs were on their way. We had multiple TVs coming our way within a matter of five minutes. So I had to look at Casey and say, here's who's bringing them. Which one do you think has the best TV? And we'll tell the others not to come. <laughs> I really didn't do that, all right? I really didn't do that. <laughs> but we did have to tell people, like, hey, no, we got plenty of TVs coming our way. We just, we just need one. And then my boy said, Dad, here's what we need to do. We need to go find who did this. And since you're bigger, Dad, you grab them, you throw them down, and then we'll kick them, all right? So that was there. And Casey came and she gave me a big hug. I didn't know how she would spawn. And Casey said, Josh, you're going to Africa in two days. I was like, baby, I'm not going to leave you here with a broken window to go to Africa. And she said, you're going to Africa. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. And she said, we prayed six months ago if you should go on this trip. And God has something in store for you on that trip. And I said, baby, I'm not leaving here. And she looked at me and she said, every single night you pray over our children. And you teach them, do not be afraid. And it's time for you to start practicing what you preach. I was like, girl, don't be using my, well, my own words against me, all right? <laughs> I don't, I don't like when people use what I say from this stage against me. But then the conversations that night and over the next 24 to 48 hours for our home was the window's going to be fine. Our house is going to be fine. TVs are going to be fine. But what we do not want to live and grow in this house is anger and resentment and bitterness and rage that keeps us from loving our God with all of our hearts and from loving our neighbors as ourselves. And these are things that so easily grow within our homes and within ourselves that we have to label for God and repent of and, and deal with. So there's a scientist, a doctor, who spends most of his life dealing with those who were terminally ill. They are on their deathbed. And this doctor wrote a book a while back, and the book is The Four Things That Matter Most. Because from this doctor's experience, for decades with those who were on their deathbed dying, is that there are four statements that, that they say most. So here are the four statements, and this person went on to write a book about it. The four statements people say most on their deathbed. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And at least one of those statements are statements you need to hear today from God. And at least one of those statements is a statement you need to share with someone else in your life. I want to ask us to stand where we are this morning. Stand where you are. We're about to sing a song, one of my favorite songs to end sermons with. 
And as we as I end this, I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to receive people for prayer. And I want to ask in this room for you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Even if you don't want to, I'm asking you just to close your eyes just for a moment. And I'm just, I just want to ask if there's someone in here who you're fully aware that there is someone in your life that you need to forgive, yet you have not been on the path yet of learning to forgive them, will you just raise a hand where you are? Every other eye is closed. Just raise a hand. And maybe just the hand that is raised is a confession in your life. In this church, we're asking God to deal with. And put your hands down and eyes closed. And I just want to ask if there's someone here who is struggling to experience and embrace the forgiveness of God in your life, will you just raise your hand where you are? And may this song be one of God's ways to set you free. God. Have your way with us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.